The race is on, and with four 2021 Formula One races in the history books, we have our first technical controversy of the year, with the FIA informing teams it will be clamping down on flexible bodywork. But why has this happened, and what impact could it have on Red Bull's World Championship chances? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer that question and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Mark, joining us from quarantine. Yes, indeed. Um... So I've uh, done my uh, test release today. I, I might be allowed out on the streets tomorrow. You never know. Um, but otherwise, it'll uh, it'll have to wait. Yeah, getting very used to the uh, the getting stuck at home after the races. But everyone's been used to stuck at home, so uh, being stuck at home, so we can't really complain. And Scott Mitchell, who is stuck in Sweden as as usual and enjoying the season from afar, how's life out there? Um, well, I think life out here depends on how much you pay attention to the pandemic or not because it is uh it's not it's not easy um out here with uh i think the 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 rate is pretty high um so there's still like a lot of places still plenty of of restrictions um but there is also sort of a decent amount of freedom because a lot of how it works out here is sort of putting the responsibility on 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 the people and accepting that there will be a a higher rate of um of, of cases and, and just hoping that the pros outweigh the cons um that's been the logic for over a year now um <laughs> I, I it's probably not for me to say whether it's worked or not um it hasn't it hasn't felt the easiest but i um i've been able to sort of free myself from my flat uh plenty of opportunities yesterday i went for an absolutely massive walk nine kilometer walk um around the around the water because Stockholm is made up of about of about 450 individual islands <laughs> so basically everywhere you go is water so that that was quite nice and then I rewarded myself at the end with a beer which was my first beer in a glass in a in an outdoor uh, in a beer garden probably since the pandemic started so that was quite nice yeah so it's all happening out there it's just sort of slight inching towards somewhere in the vicinity of, of the old ways. And it's, it's great as well to see that we had a few fans at the Spanish Grand Prix. There's going to be some fans, a few more, relatively speaking, at Monaco this weekend. So Formula One kind of slowly getting there as well. And yeah, hopefully there's some light at the end of the tunnel. But loads going on in Formula One. So let's crack into it. Scott, been a few years since we've had a proper flexi-wing controversy in F1. It's been rumbling along very quietly in the background for a while, but it all seemed to flare up with Lewis Hamilton's very deliberate comment about bendy wings, didn't it? Yeah, that that sort of brought it into the into the public space, but it was something that Mercedes boss Toto Wolff had raised with his Red Bull counterpart Christian Horner in private, which is why uh, Horner said after the Spanish Grand Prix that he he basically doubted whether it was actually Hamilton's opinion. Uh, the the inference being, or the implication being that. Wolf had put Hamilton up to it to make sure that something was was said in in, in the press. Um, Horner had, I think, previously made it clear, or at the same time, sorry, made it clear that um, Red Bull had the, the wings had passed all of the the the, the, the flex tests and every um, uh, every form of monitoring that the, the FIA has. And I don't know a huge amount about it, but as I understand it, it is quite extensive and they've got some proper kit to, to to test this stuff and it's past everything going but obviously uh the FIA does have it within its remit to introduce more more tests and and, and different kinds of tests so that is basically the um the the action it, it, it's taken here there is some 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 rumbling that while uh these the, for example the Red Bull rear wing might be passing all of the the tests that the FIA has in place at the moment 
when it is out on track and it's subjected to forces and in, in, in a way that you, you simply can't test or the way that the FA hasn't been tested at the moment, then it's clearly bending more than ideally would be allowed or, or is um, intended. So yeah, the, this is the FIA sort of springing into action and saying, right, okay, this looks like it's a little bit more than we want it to be. So we're going to take action to try and address that. The basic problem is that you can't, using a static test, which is all the, the only way they can do it, you can't um, replicate the loads that uh, the cars see at very high speed. And so uh, the there are tests done for the static test that uh, you must pass. And there is a rule saying it must remain inflexible um, beyond, beyond there. But how do you uh, regulate what the intent is um, if it does uh, happen to bend beyond those tested limits? Um, so obviously that becomes the game for every single team, not just Red Bull. Every single team will then be looking to create a structure which passes the tests and which then deforms in an advantageous way once you get beyond the loads that the, the static test um, put it through. Um, and it, Red Bull have always been masters at this. It used to be um, talked about in the, in terms of how they were getting the car to run um, so much rake without the... Uh, without the, 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 the splitter sort of uh, tunneling a hole into the ground. And it, it obviously needed to, to bend up, which is the, 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 the car the car's rake increased. And it, this is just about the layup of the carbon fibre and doing the, the software in such a way to compute what you need to do with the layup that allows it to um, deform in this very predetermined way. And so, yes, that, that's, always been, that's always been the game with all aerodynamics. It's been an issue on and off for probably getting on for 20 years and it's come up again because um, there's some evidence that Red Bull have found a way of doing it better than Mercedes. So obviously the the other team is um, publicising it. Yeah, it's in about 99 that it started to get really serious and they introduced the first really set flexible bodywork tests. Before that, it was a little bit more ad hoc. Gary Anderson tells stories of Charlie Whiting just coming to have a look at the car and he just sort of stand on the floor at the back and, and have a look at it. He uh, recalls him visiting with Jordan 191 at Monaco. Uh, one year just to to take a look at it, but it's it, well, it's two different things because there's in the technical regulations it's Article three point nine if you want to have a look about bodywork flexibility that lays out all of the the tests, but there's also a general rule as well that that the bodywork can't move. And the other thing that's worth noting is you talked about how it can be done in the the carbon fiber layup in terms of the characteristics, and obviously more. I was going to say simple, but more mechanical ways of doing this are also expressly outlawed by the regulations. There's sections uh, of that rule that talks about you can't have uh, clever preloaded springs and dampers and hydraulics. We have seen that sort of thing in the past, but now that's very expressly outlawed in in the regulations. But it, it's it's an interesting one because people like to have the the narrative of oh well here's Red Bull being the bad guys and taking liberties and and there are other teams doing it but but all teams will be doing this to a certain extent and it's a question of how much because everything has to to deflect Gary Anderson had a look at the the footage there's various videos on YouTube people have done comparing the flex and he estimated it just just to the eye he's used to doing this kind of thing from his days as technical director as maybe 15 to 20 millimeters of deflection which is if it's 15, you're kind of just about in the ballpark of what might be considered reasonable. 20, you're probably <laughs> overstepping it. So this is the interesting question. The FIA is going to be looking at footage. So if it can't be proved by load tests, by the, the load or the pushback tests, 
how can you judge it from the naked eye is an interesting question. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, I think it's the sort of thing that shows. Um, well, first of all, the ridiculous marginal gains and marginal uh, amounts and values that we end up working with. It's kind of like when everyone at the start of the season was talking about high rake versus low rake and it it's sort of talked about as if there's this like colossal difference between sort of how the cars look or or are set up and then when you actually look at the millimeter difference between the respective uh rake setups it's 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 it's, it's a, it is a very small number um but they wouldn't red bull wouldn't be doing this if uh or wouldn't have found a way to do this because it's obviously going to be very complex to make it happen if they didn't think there was some kind of advantage with it um, I very much doubt that they've designed a rear wing that just happens to bend back that much um, at high speed down 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 the straights. So um, it it's obviously something that that that, that they feel sort of has a um, some some kind of marginal gain. The the bit that's difficult for me is you touched on it there, Ed. How do you police this if you can't have a, a an exact test with an exact outcome because then you are just going to end up with uh, a, a degree of interpretation that then lends itself to lack of transparency and we, there's already enough enough sort of not controversy but there's already enough grumbling around this where people just say oh Mercedes finally gets challenged and then it starts grassing up Red Bull. And it's like, well, if it thinks it's breaking the rules, then of course it's going to try and draw attention to that. Or if it's not a case of Red Bull breaking the rules, but Red Bull doing something in a way that exploits a regulation that is has a certain intent, then of course it's going to draw attention to that. And then it's obviously down to the governing body to work out what is and isn't taking the mick, basically, with the rules as intended. Uh, but... Even even when you do have that one final governing body, um, who probably should have the right to make a judgment call on something that does fall in a grey area, you do then risk arbitrary judgments, and that when there's a title battle on like this being decided by fine margins, that's when it can get quite controversial. I do. I'll quite find it quite amusing when fans of one team or the other get angry or upset about what the other team is doing to compromise the chances of its uh, of the fans' favourite team because they're all doing the same thing, always. <laughs> it's just how the game works. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, um, yeah, the perception and the reality are very, very different on things like this. And it's always like one one team, what, one massive fan of one team then accusing like another fan of another team of being biased. It's like, yes, because obviously you're coming from a completely impartial position and there's absolutely nothing that's influencing your view on this subject. <laughs> The way I always think of it is that people think it's either about your car being legal or illegal, but actually the key sweet spot is to be not illegal. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're legal in the strictest sense of the word. But it's really interesting with flexible bodywork, because as you were saying, Scott, it's very imprecise. So this is why when it comes to anything flexy, flexy wings, flexy floors or whatever, it's always push and pull. So it's always about the governing body, the regulators trying to chase the teams to stop them from doing it so it's the team's job to push the rules that's just what they should all be doing and and rightly so and like i say it won't only be red bull that's trying to do this various teams are doing mercedes will have elements of trying to do this so really in, in those terms red bull deserves some credit for perhaps being the most uh, the most extreme and pushing the envelope further but of course when it is this game of push and pull 
there is the unwritten rule, which is the the don't don't take the mick rule, don't go too far, and that's why every now and again you have to have these little adjustments where the governing body pushes back a bit and says, "Come on, just just calm down a bit." And obviously, these slightly more stringent tests will come into effect. It'll be in the middle of June that they'll they'll kick in. So there's a little bit more time before it it comes in, but it's just all part of the ongoing game. We had this this cropped up. There's a lot of talk about this in the first year of this set of regulations. And also, if you go back to kind of 11, 12, 13, there was a lot of talk about it as well. So it flares up continually over the years. So what number of the um, sporting regs should um, don't take the mick um, be? We should we should assign the, the don't take the pee or don't take the mick uh, uh, um, a specific number in the sporting regs. That's, that's got to be 1.1a, hasn't it? Like right at the beginning in- Big cover all letters. <laughs> it's the secret. It's the secret appendix, or the uh, yeah, the unstated premise of the rules. But the thing is, everybody thinks it's so very, very black and white with the rules. But it, but it's not. There is this uh, ongoing evolutionary process with it. The the kind of games going on, and obviously we've got some poachers turned gamekeepers involved in F one's organisation. Because when it comes to flexi wings, well, it was Ferrari really what they were doing that that triggered those first flexi rule. Uh, flexi wing tests uh, over 20 years ago so there's a few ferrari people loitering around the place so people know the trick so it's it's actually quite a fascinating little dance that's that's going on it's far more interesting and nuanced than just team x is doing this and team y thinks that's wrong it's it's much more political and it's just another battleground and if you look at what for example the fia has put in and, and f1 have put into place around the 2022 rules um they've got this um rule breaking group haven't they that was set up and basically encouraged to write we've now created the rule book for the the new regulations your job is to now go and try and find as many loopholes in them if you were going to design and obviously even a specialist group like this combining some of those brains at FIA and and F1 are never ever going to find as much as the the collective power of all of the teams that are you know, trying to interpret every rule which way they can but it's an interesting process and it shows just how difficult it is to create a set of rules that is watertight and we often find or at least I often find I don't know about the two of you but um, sometimes when you're uh, trying to check a sporting reg or especially a technical reg to to cross-reference some kind of alleged rule breach can be maddening to try and make sense of what that rule actually means because the rules are often written I don't know the best way to phrase this but the rules are often written in sort of like in the in almost sort of like the negative because they're being designed they're being written to tell you what you can't do as much as what what you can do so sometimes that makes the the wording quite quite complex so it is a very as you said it a very nuanced process um you also made the good point that this obviously isn't going to happen Right, okay, from Monaco weekend, Red Bull has to conform to these new tests that are going to be in place, um, which might mean that from that, that, that they'll have to lose the, the rear wing that they've been using because this is going to happen probably from probably from the French Grand Prix onwards. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see whether or not Red Bull thinks, okay, we knew we were taking the mick with this, We've got away with it for a few races, but yeah, you've got us, you've changed it, we're going to back off now. Or if they're going to carry on, if they think that the way that they're doing it isn't any kind of explicit breach, because Mark gave the example of the uh, of you know an in-weekend change and a team not using that wing anymore, but 
if there isn't a specific threat of sanction, the team could carry on. My my assumption would be that usually a team is willing to sort of back away and say, yep, yeah, okay, we'll stop using that now because they know that they've been flirting with that line. I guess it depends on how important you think that is, that part is, and also how hard or strongly you think you can argue that it is not illegal to use the phrase that you used earlier, Ed. Well, it'll come down to can what they've got pass the load tests that are revised? That'll be the big question. And obviously that's a tricky thing because the way the the flexing happens is uh, is very specific under specific loads, specific locations, etc. Because they can they apply the load tests in a very precise way. It's all laid out in the technical regulations. So it, it'll depend how how accurate the 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 load tests are that they that they modify. And these load tests are complicated things. That's why it takes a little bit of time to implement them because they've got to have serious bits of kit to actually uh, apply them. So that's the interesting question, Mark. Is this something that you think will particularly worry? Red Bull, they're the, the ones that we're always talking about because they're the, the trigger for it. And obviously there is a good gain from from having this kind of flexi wing. Um, I'm sure they'd prefer to be able to keep it, whatever they're doing. Um, but it's um, the, invariably they, they just find other ways of clawing back the performance. And so no, I don't expect to see a fundamental shift in the competitive order as a result of this regulation. Yeah, it's certainly not a case that some clever trick wing has made them be massively close and competitive with Mercedes this year. I think some people might might see it that way, but it's it's just part of the tapestry of, of performance. And in fact, Mark, now we've had the four race weekends, we have got a reasonable picture of the performance characteristics of the Mercedes versus the Red Bull. We've talked about this on and off during the, the various podcasts, but it's perhaps worth sort of taking a step back and looking at the conclusions you've been able to draw on the strengths and weaknesses of, of the two cars. Yeah, it's quite interesting because the sequence of races that we've had, it, it makes it seem like a narrative. And the narrative is that Mercedes started behind in Bahrain, closed the gap in Imola, got level by Portimao and edged ahead in Barcelona. That's how it looks on the surface. And that, that, is, that is what's happened. But I would wonder, I'm not, I'm not convinced it's because of you know, one team making progress more more than another. And I would wonder, if we did those races in reverse order, would we not be looking at a, a situation where Mercedes starts ahead and Red Bull gradually draws level and pulls ahead? Because I think it may be circuit-specific what we're looking at, and we just had a, a sequence of circuits that makes the picture look that way. And that when we go to Monaco, I think we're going to see a different picture again. That's, that's my working theory. Um, so, yeah, the different... Um, combinations of corners and the, the this corner sp- speed spread seems to be quite crucial because that impacts quite heavily on whether you've got a, a low or a high rate car the basically the red bull seems to have a, a wider range of um setup options that keeps it in the sweet spot but the mercedes is very good if it can be kept in that sweet spot and if the circuit characteristics allow that which barcelona did and furthermore the red bull is a more aggressively loaded car at the front end, which seems to be have an impact upon um, its tyre usage. It, it's possibly the reason why it's, it, it switches its tyres on more quickly than the Mercedes, but then also uses them um, more. So in any uh, thermal deg races, which Barcelona always is, then of course the car, which is easier on its tyres, is going to look better. Um, the others haven't really been that. So we had an element of it in 
Portugal, where it was important that you kept your tyres cool through turns 13, 14 onto the main straight, which Lewis was able to do, whether how much of that was car and how much was Lewis is a point of debate, but anyway, he could. And that was crucial in how he was able to stay close enough onto the straight to be able to overtake, whereas the, the Red Bull couldn't. So I think we're seeing different circuit traits um, uh, and how they apply to each of the cars. I think more than we're seeing a development race. I think both cars are developing, but we, I don't really think we have a, a good reading yet on on, on where they're, they're, they're each at. And um, my suspicion is that because the Red Bull actually can be loaded with more downforce, but you can't always use all the downforce because there are uh, drag considerations as well. My, my feeling is that uh, we go to Monaco where drag is irrelevant and tyre deg is irrelevant. Um, the Red Bull should be favourite. Yeah, it, it's in this nice little sweet spot at the moment where when you take the different performance sensitivities of the circuits and the characteristics of the cars, there's enough for it to potentially swing between the two. And that that's what what's great to see, especially because it then really feeds in how well the drivers are, are doing as well because you get these really small swings. And if you look back through the through the year, you can find occasions where you think it could have gone one way or the other. Bahrain could have been won by either in the end. Verstappen could well have pulled off the pass. You look at some of the qualifying sessions, you can make a, a decent case that Verstappen could have been on pole in, in Portugal and Imola, but he wasn't. And at the same time, the gap in Barcelona was only, what, 36 thousandths of a second. So you know, that that by definition is is swingable because it's very unlikely any driver does the the absolute perfect lap. And in fact, the, the place where Verstappen lost most of his time to Hamilton, he was, he was stronger in those mini sectors on his second run. So... This is why this this championship's so interesting, and I think people have been tempted to say that Mercedes is still far and away the best car, but that's the great thing. There's no question of anything being far and away the best at the moment. It's within that that tight little competitive spread where it's gonna gonna swing back and forth, and you just hope it it, it keeps going. I I think the, the 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 notion of a fastest car is so um it, it's so out of date at the moment. Um, because if you were if you wanted to try if you wanted to try and make a definitive conclusion the only one i can see is that you have to you have to accept that there might well be two fastest cars which is that over one lap the red bull looks like it might have a slight edge but i would rather have the mercedes in a race you know if you were able to choose which one you were going to have for each session i'd probably like to qualify in the red bull and race in the merc but i, I think it depends which which track it was on even 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 then i think it's not not even as clear cut as that no, I think um, you, you would choose a Mercedes for a race around Barcelona, definitely. But mm. I would choose the Red Bull for a race around Monaco. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's 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 so it's so interesting and so finely poised. And I I know that there are a lot of people who are now trying to they're trying to argue that the that the this this narrative that Red Bull had the fastest car and we've all been duped by where Mercedes was um blah 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 it, it, all that's been disproven now Mercedes is, is is clearly the best but you really could be we we could be doing this podcast and reflecting on four max verstappen pole positions and and a couple of wins from the first four races and um if Hamilton hadn't had that massive slice of luck at Imola with the getting the lap back after after his mistake the championship picture wouldn't look the way it is now um it re- I appreciate it does look like the same old story, but it really isn't the same old story. It might well have a, a familiar ending, but the actual narrative to get there, I, I think it's just going to be amazing. 
Yeah, well, this is what you want it to be within the. It's almost within the noise of the of the sort of performance data that just lots of lots of little factors conspire to to swing things. And it wouldn't have taken much to swing a number of these races, and particularly with that Imola thing that you mentioned, Scott, we could easily end up with the the championship point situation massively swung as well, which I, I just think it's right, and we will see. Verstappen and Hamilton and Mercedes and Red Bull just pushing each other on. And that's the, the really great thing because four times Hamilton and Verstappen have had battles on track. I know I keep mentioning this, but it's just brilliant. There are times when if you go through a championship battle over a season, you have four on-track battles over the whole year. You say that's that's uh, unusually good. But every single race so far, we've had it. Obviously, Monaco is going to be a little bit harder because it's not the sort of circuit where you get those. But then again, last time we went to Monaco... Hamilton and Verstappen did have a little battle with that that late lunge from Verstappen as well. So exactly, yeah. So it's uh, it's, it's just great, and I think the, the my main message to to any F one fan is is enjoy it because it these seasons are rare, and if it can keep going like this, then it's going to be it's going to be a, a, an absolutely classic season. And you 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 can't just conclude that yeah, Mercedes is is in a, in a super strong position. And then, of course, once we've done Monaco, we'll then go to Baku, which is, yes, it's a street circuit, yes, some slow corners, but also massively long straights as well. So, again, the performance sensitivity shift. So so my question to the two of you then is, we've got this amazing season. It looks like Mercedes has been pegged back a little bit by the rule change over the winter around the floor. The Red Bull has made a, an improvement on the weaknesses of its car last year. So are the new big, new, shiny rules for 2022 coming at the wrong time? If we carried this over, would we not have a continuation of, of this? And are we risking everything sort of spreading out again? Yeah, we're, we are risking that. But, you know, the, the, the regulations for 22 have been brought in for uh, good reasons. And uh, they're, they're still valid reasons. And, you know, if, if, uh, you, can't, you can't just put them off because it looks like we're having a good, a good era. Um, so, no, I think it's just... One of those things, the natural evolution of the sport. Well, Scott, we're talking about rules, but Formula One cars have been getting bigger and heavier for some time now. You recently wrote an article for the race website that laid out another increase in minimum weight for next year to 790 kilograms. That's an increase from what those rules have previously had. So why is this continuing to happen? Well, the latest one, an extra 15 kilos on what the 2022 car was expected to be, is the, the only explanation I've I can get at the moment is that it's for say it's safety related on the on the chassis side which uh, has been um uh, a key part of why a few weight increases have been required in recent times obviously the the big headline uh, example of that is is the halo um but but there are always extra things that the um the FIA is trying to do whether it's uh, with you know revised um crash structures or um new crash tests requirements and stuff like this so and and you can't argue against that it it safe safety is the it is paramount so i don't have a problem with that it's it's but it is it's it's a huge um it's a huge step i think it now means that the 2022 cars are going to be the minimum weight of the 22 car is going to be 100 kilos heavier than the first v6 turbo car in, from 2014 that minimum weight was 690 so these these cars have gained a hundred kilos in eight years, which is astonishing. When you then consider that that's the that's the minimum weight without fuel. So there's over a hundred kilos of fuel goes in for the start of the race. 
but is it ridiculous or or is that just well that's just the nature of having a heavy complex v6 turbo hybrid engine so get over it It, it's one of those irritating things that when you look at the big picture and the headline numbers yeah it is ridiculous but then when you break it down and you see why it's happened it becomes much harder to to argue because you've got things like that like you say halo safety provision there's a there's a common side impact structure which was a red bull design originally that came in some years ago you've got other things next year like the, the switch to 18 inch wheel rims well that's more metal so it's going to be more heavy you've got the the weight limit on the power unit went up a bit to save on cost you've got various rules on some standardization of parts which inevitably creates some some weight because you you can't drive them down so you can see all the individual reasons why it happens and then you look at the sum of it and you're like oh that's that's absolutely huge but the thing is it's not about lap time impact for me the important thing i think and mark you're very well placed to uh to comment on this because you've been watching trackside f1 circuits for for many years and uh, i wasn't able to do that in the absolute sort of peak the 2004 cars i guess is the on the springs of mind but the longer heavier cars they are lazier and they, they don't have that that same sharpness they're still very challenging to drive very quick but i think that's an important thing people always talk about the noise of say the the v10 cars in 2004 for the sake of argument but if you just look at the footage the way the, those cars just seem to sort of turn in just it's so dynamically and dramatically yeah if you watched uh, um, a normally aspirated car from the V10 or, or, or actually the V8 area, probably even even more, more so. The speed of direction, which you could change, um, you know, well, it's running along at uh, 180, 190 miles an hour and just suddenly just flick like a, a cursor on a computer screen with no apparent effect um, was extraordinary. And you don't, you don't see that so much now. You can actually see the momentum and the movement of the car. You can see how much, you know, extra bulk there is and that it's carrying, even though these are, are, are quicker cars or a lap. Um, and they're just not as agile in the slow corners. And then you can't, um, if you're doing wheel-to-wheel combat, that these these things don't lend themselves as well to that, um, regardless of the aero, you know, just, just the fact that they take up, there's more mass to change direction with, and, and and suddenly and 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 break and all those things, um, but also the 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 real the big implication the big negative implication of of all the weight is the effect on the tires, and we we you know we we're sort of at the outer limits of what tire technology um, can withstand really with with the most um, torquey heaviest cars that Formula One has ever had. The tires are struggling, you know, and so we have this situation where they're building tougher and tougher tires, which are more and more uh, difficult to to race, and that's just, that's just how it is. So that that's the big for me. That's the big downer of the weight. Um, it, 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 yes, it, aesthetically, the, the the cars don't look as good in in motion, um, but I think the, the the big thing is the effect on the tires. And Hamilton agrees with you, doesn't he? Because Lewis has sp- spoken about this before, and he he, uh, he often sort of uh, starts speaking about something, and then is considering the sort of wider consequences of what he's talking about in the moment. And I remember, I think it was back in 2019, he was talking about this about the weight of the cars, and he started to talk about the 
the impact on the tires. He started to wonder. You can see him sort of thinking, just like I don't know what a tire can physically withstand, but this then breeds all of these knock-on consequences because when when you do when you are overstressing the tire and for countless years now there have been people in F1 questioning whether Pirelli is at the cutting edge of that tire technology so even if you take into consideration that a tire even the best tire can only withstand so much you know is there, does F1 have access to that is Pirelli doing 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 the best job but you have to have some sympathy for them because the 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 the, the load is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then you end up with drivers that won't won't push when they're behind others when you get a small slide at the rear and the tire temps spike and that's it you have to spend a lap and a half getting the temps under control and it just snowballs and creates this this bigger thing there there have always been sort of suggestions I think I think Ross Braun even said a couple of years ago two or three years ago that the intention with the next generation of car was to make it lighter. There were ways to take some of that weight out. That then that hasn't happened. So I don't I don't know because I don't understand the technology enough and the implications around it. But I'm struggling to see a point at which F1 can come back from this and and actually start taking the weight out again, unless there is a huge huge development externally outside of the F1 bubble to make the engine tech smaller more compact lighter because i know that the hybrids came with a reasonable bulk but as i said at the very beginning of this segment even the first v6 cars had a minimum weight of 690 so it wasn't like they gained 120 kilos in the first year of the new engines so i i I don't know how f1 gets back from this one of the responses i saw when we ran this article was that f1's not like the same as it's not prototype single seats anymore. They're just open. It's open wheel sports car racing. They're just, they're just sports cars basically. Um, and I don't know if that's too flippant way of, of, of viewing it because they're still very different to <laughs> what you would see in a, in a proper endurance race. But I, yeah, I, I just feel that this is what F1 is now. And the era of those ultra lightweight, super sharp, rapid prototype single seaters is gone well there's nothing you can look at and say there's an easy 50 kilos to lop off that's the problem and you look at power unit technology for example well there's always been a minimum weight of the power unit in the hybrid era and that's in fact gone up for cost saving reasons for the next generation engine they're talking about implementing cost cap on how much can be spent on the development of that so it's all these competing agendas and likewise safety equipment you know safety equipment's 99.9999% of the time, safety equipment is very, very boring and uninteresting, and it's a shame it's heavy. But obviously, the point where you really want it is when people are hitting things, and that's the point where you're really thankful for it. So that's your investment. So, yeah, without a complete, a completely radical rethink of what a Formula One car rule set is, which the next year's rule changes haven't done, because in, in that regard, because simply the weight rise emerges out of other objectives. That, that's the difficult thing. And I can't really see something that you can say clearly they should do X, Y, and Z that tackles the weight problem. And it is, it is a weight problem in, in Formula 1 because it is a shame they're so heavy. But I don't. It, it's like the lesser of multiple evils, I guess. It, 
it, it emerges from other things. I can't. Can you see any ways to, to tackle that, Mark, or is it just the way it is? No, it it emerges primarily from hybrid technology. So you got all you got the battery and all the motors. So that you know that 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 really defines it. And if you're then going to say we don't want it to be ridiculously expensive, then you got to put a you got to put a limit on the, the on the weight. So yes, of course they they're very heavy. Um, you could you could get um, a, a beautifully light car if you did a I don't know a, a one liter turbocharged um, car without um, without hybrid, and it would use less fuel than the current cars. But it wouldn't be hybrid, and so it's being driven by the automotives and or Formula One's desire to link in with the automotives. Um, so, if if you're going to do that and you're going to say we must have hybrids, then we we're, we're stuck with a, a car that's too heavy for the tires and which will inevitably um, compromise the quality of the racing. And hybrid will still be the 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 nature of the engine formula for the new rules in 25 maybe even the next generation beyond that because f1 does see this combination of hybrid technology and um what they call e-fuels they believe that that is the way to future proof the combustion engine and 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 stop from having to explore an, a time when f1 has to look at going majority or fully electric or hydrogen or something like that the the idea is that if you have the if you have e-fuels times hybrid you get to keep the combustion engine around because there will be a form of transportation whether even if it's not you know city cars and stuff like this but there will be a need for the combustion engine longer term married with these kinds of fuels f1 can be the forefront of that so that's where the f1 engine is going to go so i don't see them dropping hybrid for the foreseeable so this is just what we've got yeah it's it's the path that's been chosen it's ultimately i think it's the it's it's the right path and there are great technological advantages as well formula one can't stay rooted in the past the technology being driven is is a big part of it and so i think that's just uh yeah the way of the world and you see the same exactly the same trend in road cars ultimately they get heavier for, for a multitude of, of reasons. But while we're on rules, Mark, big talking point so far this season has been track limits. Spain was relatively quiet on that, but it's been quite a big deal the rest of the time. Do you see an end to this this situation? Because many argue you take a hard line, zero tolerance approach, but can it ever really be that simple when it comes to track limits that are what you might call virtual track limits, painted lines and, and curbs rather than, say, a wall or gravel or something problematic to drive on? If you're going to have a system where you monitor cars... Uh, over a notional white line, there are going to be, uh, a, a, you know, a, 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 such a huge array of different circumstances, um, and it, it becomes just unmanageable. Um, so, yeah, there are reasons why we don't we've moved away from the old system of uh, a curb followed by a little bit of concrete, followed by a bit of grass and then a gravel trap. Because if you have that, you don't need to monitor anything. Because if you go onto the grass, you lose time. So nobody's going to go on the grass. So it doesn't doesn't require any monitoring. It wouldn't require any penalties. Um, but there are reasons why we've moved away from that. And it's to do with the, the circuits um, having to also be in use for, for motor, motorcycle racing and the requirements for the runoff areas there are quite different so this is the compromise we've ended up at and they said well we just we we we, we define the the track limit with a with a with a white line 
or a curb or a whatever, and um, we'll we'll just monitor it. But yeah, you, you've introduced a whole bunch of problems for yourself by doing that, and that's it's not it is it isn't solvable as long as you stay with that system of monitoring. And and a cynical point to to, to add on to that is that this. You know, finding a balance between different kinds of uh, machinery, four-wheeled and two-wheeled, is is a huge part of it, and probably the single biggest part of it. But cynically, as well, is a commercial consideration. There's lots of circuits that um, prefer runoff and don't want grass because it's expensive to maintain, and they don't want gravel because it's it it, it disrupts things like track days and promotion pro, promotional events where cir- circuits earn a, a, a lot of money. I remember speaking to one circuit owner who said that their ideal solution was to eliminate basically all of the grass and all of the gravel around the exit of their circuit and just have runoff because they wouldn't need to maintain it they could have loads of corporate clients and other things that could go drive around the circuit hire it out and if they lot and if these you know uh, over enthusiastic gentleman drivers shall we call them lost control of the car they haven't got anything to to damage their car they don't they've got nothing to hit around the outside either because they've got a massive car park on the outside to, to fly into. And I trying to get a straight answer out of the, the powers that be on, on, on this and working out what that breakdown is, you know, what is the most significant hurdle is difficult. I'm not saying that that is, that trumps, that's the, you know, the number one thing that F1 would, ha- or the FIA would have to resolve because they do these kind of things in, collaboration with uh, the FIM which is the motorcycle governing body but that that's definitely one of them as well because this is the thing it's all well and good the FIA and or FIM or whoever it is saying okay this is what we want this solution to be but you will you need every circuit to 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 buy into it and obviously there will come a point where you have to if you want to if that's the rule and you want to host formula 1 or MotoGP or whatever it is you'd have to buy into it but a lot of the circuits don't want to and it becomes, if you've got a situation where there aren't natural track limits, it becomes difficult uh, to enforce them in the right way because there's always very different ways you can use the the runoff. To use one famous case from this year as, as, a, as an example, obviously the Verstappen pole lap that wasn't in, in Portugal where he ran wide at, at turn four. Now, there was no problem with him losing the time because it was explicit. If you bust track limits there, then you would lose your time regardless of the circumstances. Fine. But there's ways you can use the track limits there to gain time or there's ways you can do it to lose time and in fact Verstappen lost time in what he did because it was because he had a little rear snap that he adjusted coming out the corner so it actually compromised his his exit so you you've got a situation where a car could be basically in the same place beyond track limits but got there in a different way and suddenly you've, you've got a problem and we've also got these questions of people say well you could have some kind of electronic power cut or, or that kind of thing but what happens if you've gone beyond track limits to avoid something or for some legitimate reason you know there's so much uh so much nuance and, and detail there i think the only way you can ever really police it is if you find some clever way to create a natural track limit that also upholds those uh those desires to have it as cheap and maintainable and safe and it's very easy to sit there and say there must be something and, and people are working on trying to come up with some ideas but I don't really see there ever being a an end to it with with the way things are things are currently. But there's a safety element as well to even uh, some kind of artificial or synthetic uh, situation where you have a low grip surface or something on the outside because the the safety implication of that is if you've got this runoff area and then beyond that you've got barriers whether it's t- a tire barrier armco whatever it is. Um, if you put 
that material down as the runoff that causes a car to lose or bike to lose grip when it goes that far wide, then you're probably increasing the probability that that car has a crash because it's gone wide or that vehicle's had a crash because it's gone wide rather than um, simply just, just, just going wide. And in the situation we're in now where quite rightly the governing bodies as we said before on the issue of weight they put a premium on safety i don't think you're ever going to have a a governing body vote in favor of something that in any situation probably increases the probability of a a, a, of an accident but I i might be wrong on that one but it just feels like that is the most sensible solution in terms of being able to have something that works everywhere but it wouldn't be practical from a safety point of view it's the problem. There's certainly issues with the way it is policed and the constant change of what's being policed where on F1 weekends is is far from ideal. Although I have to say the criticism that Red Bull have had for it, I don't have a great deal of uh, time for because everything that happens in terms of Verstappen giving the place back in Bahrain, in terms of Portugal, the fastest lap as well, was in line with what was in the event notes. And I think Red Bull and Verstappen were a little bit flat-footed in terms of being on top of what they could do, in fact. But yeah, there certainly needs to be a slightly better approach in F1 to how they're dealt with. But I think the fundamental problem is always going to require a certain amount of nuance in interpretation. Moving on to something a little bit more simple. McLaren's got a special one-off golf livery at the Monaco Grand Prix this weekend. If anyone hasn't seen that yet, it's well worth a look. So head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphens. Have a have a, a look at that. It's amazing how rare this kind of thing is, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. Because the, um, the option does exist for teams to do it. It's just been something that doesn't always get picked up on. Um, you obviously had the Mercedes retro livery um, in the German Grand Prix. Was that in 2019? Which that feels so so long ago now. Um, the the Ferrari uh, 1000 race um, livery at, at Mugello, and and, and now this. Um, I'm glad that it. In a way, I'm glad that it's rare because it does add to just how special and exciting it is for what is effectively paint. <laughs> um, but I, I'm, I've seen this from the point of view of you know what kind of stories readers are interested in, and also what it excites me. Um, we care about what we see. That the, there is such amazing value in the aesthetics of something. I, I uh, one of my ways of uh, I wouldn't say relaxing, but just sort of taking a bit of a pause after the Spanish Grand Prix was to catch up on the British Touring Car Championship season opener from Fruxton, and I was so. I was, so, I, was, I was almost angry at how rubbish a bunch of the liveries were. Like, there's a, this, an, this amazing 30-odd car field with lots of different shapes and models represented. It's normally so colourful and vibrant. And about 12 of the cars were either black or dark grey. And it's just like, well, what's the point of this? this it, 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 just, it does devalue it, even if it's in a, a really um, fundamentally insignificant way. It is something that does matter to people. So... Um, it is rare that we see something like this in Formula One. I think it makes it more special. I think it could be done a little bit more, but when it's done, it has to be done properly. And I have to say, this is—you—you um, you can't argue that this uh, hasn't been done properly. <laughs> well, that's the great thing with the McLaren. It, it's a full car livery. I must admit, when I, I first saw it, I half expected that it was going to be one of those slightly half-baked ones where you get uh, there's an extra sticker or there's like a little corner of the car that, that's got something on it but yeah whole car proper colors proper 
golf blue, proper golf orange. So they've not even used the McLaren papaya for that, which is nice. Overalls, garage, team kit, etc. So really going for it. And great value for the, the sponsors as well, not just golf, because actually it means there's going to be a lot of, car, of eyes on the car. And when you, you look at the car, I have seen, the, seen that livery on a car in person. And all of the other sponsors really do do sort of pop off the car you can see the sponsor hadn't even really clocked were on the car and the regular livery that, that you could see there admittedly it's easy when you're saying like i hope it looks good on 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 tv the main the main question for me is obviously that the the blue color the light blue color in mats uh it looks more subdued than you have in a more sort of glossy shiny one they had a uh, there was a when mclaren un- unveiled it to us they had a, a mclaren f1 uh, gtr from from the modern the golf liveries which had that sort of shininess to it so that the blue was a little bit more uh vibrant but i hope it looks good on on screen and all credit to them we, we should see this a bit more a bit more often because it just it, ultimately it's just the color of the car so it doesn't really matter but it, it, it i'm surprised more teams don't take the opportunity to uh to do this kind of thing more often are you excited about it mark yeah it's, it's a it's an iconic scheme it just it, it instantly takes me to porsche 917s um you know 6970 um the, the joseph and Pedro Rodriguez cars. It's just, yeah, it is. It's a beautiful, it, it's a beautiful livery. And um, it's, as I say, just iconic, one of the, one of the sports iconic ones. And it's, it's nice to see it um, given a, a sort of a, a, a an update and uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not important, but it's nice. Yeah. And as we've seen, it's very, very popular with the fans on social media. So that's also a, a positive. Well, Mark, let's have a quick look at an interesting subplot in the World Championship battle. Red Bull powertrains is being built up, various Mercedes staff being signed up. It's very similar to when Red Bull Racing were ramping up in 2005, six time, and making themselves very unpopular and disruptive with their, their big money bids. And it all seems to be happening again, doesn't it, with Toto Wolff talking about tripling salaries and so on and so forth? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's some... Um lucky engine people uh, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly earning a lot more than they imagined they would be uh, you know a few months ago uh, yeah you, they, they're very serious about it and um, Toto's in the propaganda war has been quite dismissive saying you know just just getting a few a few pe- poaching a few people in, in, in an empty factory it's not going to make them um, you know a match for bricks worth Mercedes HPP Oh, maybe not, but um, let's see. They're, they're, they're investing a huge amount of money, more money than they've invested since they uh, first came into Formula One. Um, it's, it's, it's almost like doing that again. It's almost like um, the buying a team again. It's, 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 it's that level of investment. Um, they've got a nice sort of soft uh, run-up to it in that it, they've, they've taken over the Honda project, or will be. Uh, so... Uh, they've got a little bit of a head start there, and yeah, they're they're, they're just they're absolutely um, looking to create the first Formula One specialist engine company that the probably in well, the last few decades. When was the last one that was created? Probably probably uh, Ilmor, which became HPP, and before that Cosworth. So yeah, this I think. Um, they're they're absolutely serious about it, and it it, it has created um, a, few, a few ripples, and it puts them in a great position as well because they've got the capacity; they'll be able to do their own power units, but they'll also be able to partner up with various companies and manufacturers. So it's it's wonderfully flexible, and it I guess it finally removes them from being at the mercy of what kind of engine deal they can get. So that that's very positive for Red Bull. Yeah, it is going to be a challenge to 
to build it up to get it to the level of what Bricksworth can do. But then again, when Red Bull was building up the race team, people were dismissing it. Oh, they're not they're not a racing team. They're an energy drinks maker, aren't they? You know, it'd be very, very dangerous now to say, well, they're just a chassis maker, aren't they, in Formula 1? They can't be an engine builder. So I think it's, uh, yeah, a very interesting, very interesting change in the dynamic and the nature of that team. And I think it's kind of audacity that deserves to deserves to pay off but it, it's it's great that it's causing that little bit of extra needle isn't it Scott and obviously it's become quite a big talking point between uh, between Toto Wolff and Christian Horner yeah it's it's amusing me because you basically have both parties saying don't believe the other because oh they've only got their agenda it's like it's it's basically it's like what I was saying earlier about like diehard F1 fans who then accuse the other F1 fans of being the boat the biased one is um you've got Red Bull saying don't believe Mercedes they're just having to they're just worried about having to, you know, do a bunch of pay rises just to keep them on board because everyone really wants to come and work for us. And then you've got the Mercedes side saying, oh, well, Red Bull are only snapping up irrelevant people who do important work, but on, you know, the production or manufacturing side, not they're not about performance. You can't build a, an engine division from these people. Um, and they're only going there anyway because Red Bull have offered them a bunch of money and a job that we won't offer them here. All the good people that are loyal when they're staying. So, it's just funny. It's, it's it's a different kind of tit for tat, but that's exactly what it is. Um, oh, I I think it is. I think it is very interesting, and it is quite. It is just cool as well to to, to think that there will be a Red Bull Formula One engine, something that has been talked about so many times. And uh, I I think it's good for F one in the long term, and it's probably good for Red Bull in in in, in the long term. Um, we're gonna have a a piece on the race this week looking at sort of that Red Bull powertrains build up a bit more in depth with with Christian Horner. Uh but I I would imagine there are going to be more uh more sign ins that um you know get Wolf's back up and tra- uh trigger a bit more of trading blows. I, I think this is something that will happen from from time to time. The interesting thing will be, you know, at what point will there, if at all, be an individual being signed by Red Bull Powertrains that really, really ticks Mercedes off. That would be quite fun to see. Yeah, if that hasn't happened already, I'm sure it's. Uh, I'm sure it will happen. Uh, yeah, just a just a great little sideshow, a pantomime, if you like, but also something that has a big impact on the, the longer term landscape in Formula One. And, and finally, Scott F1's calendar was always going to be a bit of a movable feast. We've now had a replacement race fall over, which has had knock on effects. And the return of a double header. Yeah, we've got the um, F1 calendar equivalent of a football player who comes off the bench and then gets subbed off um, because uh, Turkey is is no more. Obviously, came in to replace Canada, but um, uh, Turkey's got its own uh, COVID situation to deal with, and it's on the UK red list, so uh, it just wasn't possible. There. There was briefly some talk of a date swap with Azerbaijan to maybe sort of make sure that people could go out to Turkey and then be be out for long enough to then be able to return to the UK without a crazy quarantine. Um, but Azerbaijan wouldn't move the date. I don't even know if that was really that seriously suggested. Um, so yeah, now we have a situation where Turkey's gone again. Um, and the way to resolve that is bring um, bring France forward and give Austria a second date. So uh, we have another Red Bull Ring doubleheader, um, which reprises the uh, the start of the 2020 Formula 1 season. That feels like 
the last the Red Bull winning double header last year now feels like an absolute age ago. It doesn't feel like it happened less than twelve months ago. Uh, it feels uh, we we were joking obviously at the very beginning that we're just starting to creep back into something resembling normality in a few ways now. Uh, and the starting the F one season in July with two races in Austria just feels like an absolute alien world, doesn't it? <laughs> The thing that's well that's nice about the double headers is if you remember the two double headers we had last year at Red Bull Ring and, and Silverstone, both of them produced quite different weekends. And I thought that was great for illustrating how these small differences in conditions and slight differences in terms of the uh, the setup approach. Obviously, the two Silverstones there were some slightly different aero approaches going on. It, it, it's proof that you do get significant changes on on really small things isn't it mark it's great to actually see that sort of thing in action and we could well get that again with the red bull ring this season yeah i mean you always see it when you look when you delve in detail about why a race happened the way it did and you think oh well that, that didn't need to have happened there it was only because they made this decision but the reasons that they made it turned out not to be valid and blah 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 so you, you can always see when you dig deep that there are an Infinity ways that the race might have panned out, and the one that we got was just a random one of those infinities. Um, and so, yeah, we, we we saw it in action when we had uh, consecutive races at the same venues. Yeah, it's the closest thing we'll get to living the uh, the many worlds uh, theory in, uh, in in Formula One, where we at least get two realities of a Grand Prix weekend, which is uh, well, we got them all the time. If if the many world theories is correct, they're all happening all the time. <laughs> they are, yeah, but nice. we, we can't, yeah, but we can't cover them. <laughs> Not partly on certain time. We are part- covering them elsewhere. Oh, other versions of yeah, us are though. Exactly. Yes. There's a version of me out there somewhere that's got a much stronger hairline than I've got at the moment. No, I think you were fired. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Mitchell's in the box. He either has a job or doesn't have a job. He's in a super position. Yeah, exactly. Bit of quantum mechanics to end the podcast off, which is always, always, uh, always good fun. Uh, we should probably stop there before we start rambling into areas that we have very little understanding of, and in fact, very few people have. Have, uh, have understanding of. Uh, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to this podcast. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on your podcast supplier of choice. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Just search for The Race. Well, we're heading off to Monaco now. And of course, we'll be back after the Monaco Grand Prix for everything you need to know from that weekend. <laughs>